Well, can I again say thank you for the very warm welcome. We do feel quite at home here. Uh, we know much about Windsor Baptist Church through Naomi. Uh, I must confess, she always used to say that she lived in a beautiful part of the world. And when you come from Cape Town, it's hard to believe that, because Cape Town is the most beautiful part of the world. But, um, but we had a drive yesterday. Uh, I'm going to get my directions wrong. We went that way to Larne, and we went all the way around the coast up the, the, to the Giant's Causeway. And uh, I, if you promise not to tell her this, I actually need to agree with Naomi. She, she does live in a beautiful part of the world. And so we've had a great time here, and it's been a special joy to be able to come and be with you this morning. And thank you for the privilege, David, of letting me open up God's word to you. Won't you, in fact, turn with me to Hebrews chapter 10? It's a great passage of scripture, one of my favourites, and we're going to speak about it together. Maybe before I do that, though, you'd uh, permit me to pray for us once more. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the gift of your word. We thank you that by your spirit you speak to us through it. And we pray now, Lord, that as we come to your scriptures, that you would open up our hearts and our minds, that we would be still in the busyness of life, be quiet before you today, so that we might hear you speak to us. Father, I do long for your voice to be heard this morning. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, a fair portion of the reason we're travelling at the moment is, is, to be quite honest, a holiday. It's to come and visit some family and friends in the south of London, in the north of London, and to come over here to Northern Ireland and Belfast in particular. And, and it's exciting. When you, when you make that decision to plan a holiday, I'm sure many of you will have done that. In fact, it's your summertime now. I'm told, and, uh, and so, so you'll be getting ready to go on your own holiday that you've been planning and preparing for. And there is that excitement, isn't there, when you start getting ready for it. Of course, when you're from South Africa, you suddenly realise, oops, it's no good planning a holiday unless I've got the passport. And then in South Africa as well, it, because our passport is green, uh, you can never travel invariably outside of South Africa without not just your passport, you need a visa as well. See, the truth is, having that passport and having that visa are your access to the world. You can't really get anywhere out of South Africa without those two things. Now, now I have a purple passport, so it's great. I just wave at Nikki and say, have a nice time, love, I'll see you in a few weeks. No, I don't do that, as you can see. Uh, but, but you've got to have a passport that lets you go places. You've got to have access to these other places. Now, Hebrews chapter 10 is all about a passport, if you'll allow me to use that phrase. A passport that gives us access to places we've never been before. See, Hebrews chapter 10 is all about our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ. And it's him who gives us access. Let me read to you just again verse 19. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place... By the blood of Jesus. That word therefore reminds us that everything he's about to say links back to the great truths he's been unpacking, particular in chapter 7, 8 and 9 in the first part of chapter 10. And there he's focused in depth on Jesus as the great high priest. The one who does incredible priestly work on the basis of a better covenant, on the basis of a better sanctuary and on the basis of a better sacrifice. And it's Jesus' priestly work that changes everything. That's really the first thing I want you to notice from this passage this morning. 
And that is that it's Jesus Christ, our Lord and Saviour, who opens the way for you and me today. You see, access to God's presence up until the cross had been blocked. But that which was previously blocked is now open. It was blocked because of our sinfulness. I know we don't like to think of ourselves as sinners, but that's how the Bible describes us. It tells us that we are people who by birth don't live the way God wants us to live. It's not just that we do horrible, malicious things. It's that every fiber of our being is tainted and slanted to a way that's opposed to God. And so because of that sinfulness, we're unable to be in his presence. For if we were to be in his presence, we would incur his judgment and his wrath. But chapter 9 has painted the most glorious picture for you and me of Jesus coming and laying down his life on a cross. And we have some of these incredible verses at the end of chapter 9 that reminds us that by his blood Jesus has abolished sin. Chapter 9 verse 26. And by his blood, chapter 9 verse 28, he has taken away our sin. And in doing that, Jesus has opened up for us. Did you see it there in verse 19 of chapter 10? A new and living way opened through the curtain. We have new access to God. New because we've never had such freedom before to approach him. I was thinking about this a little while ago and I thought, I wonder if Adam and Eve had the same freedom that we have in Christ. And actually, as I think about it, I'm I'm actually convinced they didn't. Now, we can approach God in ways that nobody else pre-Jesus could approach him. We can approach him in a living way because this way through Christ means life. Previously, were we to enter into God's presence, that was death. But now as we enter God's presence, that is not just life, it is the source of life. It is the way we get life. And it's opened up for us through the body. See, access to God has been secured by means of Jesus' death. That's what that little phrase in verse 20 means, through the curtain. That is his body. You see, it's the giving of his body on the altar of the cross that Jesus secures a new way for you and me. It's at the cross that Jesus secures access into the presence of God. Now, for a lot of us sitting here today, that's probably not new. And the danger as we hear this is we say, yeah, we know that. And we don't often feel the weight of it. We don't feel the significance of that in a way that the original readers who were Hebrews, Jewish origin people, how they would have understood it. And I'm going to ask you to bear with me as I read to you a passage from a commentary that I think just helps us feel the weight of what's happening here at at the start of this passage. It's taken from John Philip's commentary on Hebrews. He says, Imagine with me a Moabite of old, gazing down upon the tabernacle of Israel from the lofty hillside. The Moabite is attracted to what he sees, so he descends the hill and he makes his way towards the tabernacle. He walks around the high wall of dazzling linen until he comes to the gate, and at the gate he sees a man. May I go in there, he asks, pointing to the gate where all the hustle of activity in the tabernacle's outer court can be seen. Who are you, demands the man suspiciously. Well, I'm from Moab, the stranger replies. Well, I'm very sorry, but you can't go in there. You see, it's not for you. The law of Moses has barred the Moabite from any part in the worship of Israel until his tenth generation. 
And the Moabite looks sad and says, well, what would I have to do to go in there? You would have to be born again, the gatekeeper replies. You would have to be born an Israelite of the tribe of Judah or of the tribe of Benjamin or Dan. Oh, I wish I'd been born an Israelite, the Moabite says. And as he looks again, he sees one of the priests having offered a sacrifice at the altar. And the priest cleansed himself at the brazen laver. And then the Moabite sees the priest enter the tabernacle's interior. What's in there? asked the Moabite. Inside the main building, I mean. Oh, the gatekeeper says, that's the tabernacle itself. Inside it contains a lampstand, a table and an altar of God. The man you saw was a priest. He will trim the lamp, eat the bread and burn the incense to the living God. Ah, sighs the Moabite. I wish I were an Israelite so that I could do that. I would so love to worship God in there and help him to trim the lamp and offer him incense and eat the bread at that table. Oh no, the gatekeeper says. Even I could not do that. To worship in the holy place, one must not only be born an Israelite, one must be born of the tribe of Levi and of the family of Aaron. The man from Moab sighs again. I wish I'd been born of Israel, of the tribe of Levi, of the family of Aaron. And then as he gazes wistfully at the closed tabernacle, he says, what else is in there? Oh, there's a veil. It's a beautiful veil, I'm told. It divides the tabernacle in two. Beyond the veil is what we call the most holy place, the holy of holies. What's that, the Moabite asks. Well, there's a sacred chest in there. It's called the Ark of the Covenant. It contains holy memorials of our past. Its top is gold. And we call that the mercy seat because God sits there between the golden cherubim. Do you see that pillar of cloud hovering over the tabernacle? That's the Shekinah glory cloud. It rests on God's mercy, said the gatekeeper. Again, a look of longing comes over the face of the Moabite man. Oh, he says, if only I were a priest, how I would love to go into the Holy of Holies and gaze upon the glory of God and worship him there in the beauty of his holiness. Oh, no, oh, no, said the man at the gate. You couldn't do that even if you were a priest. Only the high priest can enter the most holy place. Only he can go in there, no one else. And the heart of the Moabite yearned once more. Oh, he cried, if only I'd been born an Israelite of the tribe of Levi, of the family of Aaron. If only I'd been born a high priest, I would go in there every day. I would go in there three times a day. I would worship continually in the holy of holy. Oh no! Oh no, the gatekeeper said. You couldn't do that. Even the high priest of Israel can go in there only once a year and then only after the most elaborate preparations and even then only for a little while. Sadly, the Moabite turned away. He had no hope in all the world of ever entering there. Now read these words again. Therefore, brethren, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way open for us through the curtain, that is his body. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near.
I hope today as you sit here, dear friends, you understand the incredible privilege that is ours through Christ. I hope you understand that through Christ, the way into the presence of our Heavenly Father, the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, the Sovereign Creator of the whole world, access to Him has been opened. I hope you realize that because of Him and His death on the cross, you can walk into the presence of God and call Him Father. Isn't that mind-blowing? Isn't that mind-blowing? Of course, there are two very important implications for us to ponder. The one is that there is no access apart from Jesus into the presence of God. We must be very clear about that this morning. There is no way into the presence of God apart from Jesus. See, it might be that you think there is. It might be that you think coming to church, even a good church like Windsor Baptist, it might be that visiting South Africa might, think, might get you into heaven somehow, I don't know. It might be that you think doing good deeds. It might be thinking some charity. It might be that you think if you just try hard enough, do enough, keep enough laws, well, you'll get access into the... No. Now, I need to say to you today, friends, the only way into the presence of God is through the atoning death of His Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. And I hope and pray you know that today. Of course, if you know that today, then there's good news for you too. Because if you're anything like me, and maybe this might shock you, I don't know about you, but I'm a sinner. If you don't believe it, ask my wife or my children. They'll confirm it at the end of the service. There are times where I fail. And there are times, even as the minister, even as the preacher, where I look at myself in the mirror and I say, Do you really think you're going to get into heaven, Luke Giles? Look at you. Look at the things you do. You see, see, not only is this the only way in, but because nothing can change the cross, nothing can change the way in. Nothing can stop us. One of my favorite passages, interestingly enough, you quoted earlier on, is Romans 8, isn't it? And do you know how Romans 8 goes just before the passage where, where, where David quoted? It says, can anything separate you from the love of God? Can death can angels, can powers, can demons? Is there anything that can stop you entering the presence of God if you love the Lord Jesus Christ? No. Nothing can separate you from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Friends, I hope you know that today. I hope you have that sense of assurance today that nothing, because of the death of Jesus on the cross, because of his great priestly work, nothing can separate you from the love of God that is in Jesus. And I hope and pray this morning that that is a great comfort to you as you realize Jesus has opened the way by a new and living way open for us through the curtain. That is his body. Of course, the question we must ask this morning, therefore, is how do we respond? If Jesus has opened the way, if he's given us this access, if he's allowed us to enter into the presence of God, what should we do? How should we respond to that? Well, if you keep reading this passage, I think you'll find there are three ways And the reason I say that is there are three exhortations here in this passage. Three let us. I know in the NIV it looks like five, but it's actually only three. There are three exhortations as to how we respond to the access Jesus has given us. The first one is there in verse 22. Do you see it? Let us draw near to God with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith. You see, we should seize the opportunity... To the, to, to the way that Jesus has opened for us. 
We should seize the opportunity his priesthood has made possible. I love my mom and dad dearly. And my mom and dad have got a valid passport sitting in their safe. And do you know what they've done with that valid passport sitting in their safe? Nothing. I don't think they've travelled more than about 50 miles from their home in the last decade. You see, I'm the kind of guy that says, what's the point of getting your passport and putting it in your safe? Is that just me, maybe? I don't know, maybe. I I certainly wouldn't get my passport, get my visa, go to the airport and watch the aeroplane take off and wave and go home again. I don't want to do that. No, I've got my passport because I want to travel. I've got the visa because I want to bring my wife with me. I want us to be able to do things now. But here we are as Christians. We have this wonderful access into the presence of God. Clearly opened for us by the blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. And what do we do? We stay out. He says, what nonsense is that? How do we respond to this? We draw near in full assurance of faith. See, by faith, everything has changed with respect to our access to God. We we did one of these hop-on, hop-off bus tours through Belfast. And we, I hope I say this correct, we went to Stormont. Is that that right? Does that sound right? It looked like a very impressive, we're going back on Monday to see. And one thing I noticed was because of the Queen's recent visit, there were all these guards, and, and what do you call them, chain fencing up all over the place. And the whole thing was saying, you can't come in here. I'm hoping and praying when I get there tomorrow that they'll be gone. And I'm hoping the signal for me as we walk up to the stormwind will be come in. But I've still got to walk up that long hill, don't I? I've still got to take myself off and walk up to go inside. Dear friends, we have to, by faith, draw near to God. You see, faith changes everything. We can go in. See, see, remember our poor Moabite? Can you imagine if somebody finally said to him, look, I can get you in there, and he said, oh, no, thanks, I've changed my mind. We think that's ridiculous. If Jesus has opened the way up for us, why wouldn't we go in? Now you see, by faith, our whole relationship with God has been transformed. By faith, our whole relationship with God is totally different. Did you notice that little phrase at the end of verse 22? Having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. See, there might have been a time, if you had the eyes to see it, you wouldn't have gone into the presence of God. You would have been too afraid to do that. You might have known that to walk into the presence of a holy God was death to you. But what he says here is, he says, but now now that's changed. See, when our consciences realize the wrath of God has been rightly satisfied, when our consciences realize the penalty for sins cleansed through Jesus has happened, what will we do? Well, we'll lose all fear and we'll approach God with total confidence. When we realize we've been washed clean, when we've been purified, when we know that we've been made acceptable to God once and for all, what will we do? We'll approach God with confidence. See, my question to many Christians is why don't we live in the victory, in the richness that is ours as Christian people? Why haven't the doors swung open for us? Do we stay on the outside? Why don't we draw near to God? Now that will look like many different things for different people. I think what it will mean, at least one thing it will definitely mean, is that if we are drawing near to God into the throne room of His grace, it means we will be people of prayer. That's the one thing it will mean. We will be people who pray. It's not limited to prayer, but it certainly will be prayer. 
See, see, those who know the way is opened are going to access that, aren't they? We're going to go into the throne room of God's grace and we're going to beseech him. We're going to call upon his name. We're going to cry out to him to help us. See, it might be to help somebody who's sick and we come to him as the one who's healer. It might be because we've got some other issue that we're facing and we need his wisdom. We need his guidance. See, those who are drawing near to God are those who will call upon him. It's those who will seek his face. It's those who will ask him to intervene. You see, they don't stand on the outside holding thumbs, rubbing their rabbit's foot. No, no. We walk into the throne room of God's grace. We seek his face. We pray to him because we draw near in confidence because we know Jesus has opened the way. But keep looking. Verse 23 gives us a second way we respond. Not just do we draw near to God, but verse 23 tells us, let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess. Now, I don't know if you've ever thought this. Maybe I shouldn't tell you this, but every once in a while I read a passage in the Bible and I think, I wouldn't have put it like that. Do you ever think like that? It's a good thing that I didn't write the Bible, let me tell you. And when you read verse 23, it's like that, because most of us would put the word faith there. Let us hold unswervingly to our faith. But he doesn't say that. He says, hold unswervingly to our hope. And you actually have to understand a little bit about Hebrews to understand why he puts that word hope there. See, hope in the book of Hebrews describes the objective content of that hope. It it, it describes where you're going to land up. And our hope in the book of Hebrews is both our present and our future salvation. So back in chapter 6, he's used the same phrase, but he's related it to Jesus' entry into the heavenly sanctuary. And here in chapter 10, he links us to that same heavenly sanctuary. Do you see what he's saying to you? He's saying not only will you draw near to God, but you'll hold on to heaven. You won't let go of where you're going to land up. You won't change destinations. You won't transfer it to a different plane going somewhere else. No, no, if you are drawing near to God, if you are accessing the way open to you, then you will hold on to heaven. You will hold on to the hope that is yours, your future salvation in the place of God. You see, you won't just draw near to God. I mean, here's the thing. You won't just draw near to him. You'll actually take up residence with him. See, see that's where you'll plan to be. That's where you'll want to be. And the good news is that nothing can throw you and me out of the presence of God. That's why he says, hold without wavering. Don't give up on the access that God, through Jesus' priesthood and sacrifice, have made possible. See, we hold securely. I I think there are times when people meet me, and I don't think like this, but I sometimes think they'll think I'm quite arrogant. I was once asked the question, do you think you're going to heaven? Without batting an eyelid, I said yes. And this poor lady, bless her, said to me, but how, how can you say that? How can you be so sure you're going to heaven? See, she thought I was arrogant. She thought I thought I was important because I've been to Bible college. I'm the pastor of a church. I've even, I don't know if you've got one of these, I've even got a funny shirt with a little piece of white stuff. You know, she, th- she thought that's what I was saying. She thought because of who I was, I had confidence. See, it might be that you think a little bit like that. You think because you're nice, because you're friendly, 
because of whatever, because of what you give to charity, because of the good deeds you do. You might think you'll get, that's where you're confident. No, no, not according to Hebrews 10. See, my confidence has got nothing to do with Luke Giles. It's got nothing to do with any degrees, any job, any character, any personality. Let me assure you of that right now. Do you know why I am confident? Because Jesus died on a cross 2,000 years ago and nothing in this world can change that. You see, I am confident. Keep reading verse 23. I am confident not because of Luke Giles. I am confident because he who promised is faithful. See, when God says the death of his son on the cross is sufficient to take away my sin and your sin. When he says to me in his word that the death of his son not only does away, not only takes away, not only removes my sin, but makes me spotless, washed pure and clean, that makes me acceptable to God, well, how can I not be confident? See, my confidence is nothing that I've done. My confidence is in everything that Jesus has done and in everything that God has promised me. You see, I want to hold unswervingly. I want to know that I'm going to heaven. I want to know that by Jesus nothing can change my destination. See, I think that's the good news for us as Christians. That because of Jesus nothing, nothing can undermine us. Nothing can rob us. See, my confidence isn't in my abilities or my conduct. It's in God and his faithfulness alone. It's because God's promises are trustworthy, because God is unchanging in his character. That's why I can stand here not arrogantly, but assured in Christ. When you get to know me, you'll discover in Luke Giles you're in a hopeless case. But in Christ, Luke Giles is going to heaven. And I hope that's true for you today. And so not only will we pray, we'll persevere. We'll persevere. He goes on through the rest of the chapter to tell us how difficulties will come. And in fact, he he writes to a group of people who are facing great hardship. But what do believers on the way do? What do those who've drawn near to God do? We persevere. We press on. We don't throw away our confidence. We persevere in faith, holding firmly to our hope. We know that that's where we're going and we know if we press on, we'll get there. We don't give up at the first sign of trouble. We don't give up at the first sign of hardship. We don't give up at the first sign of difficulty. And it might be as we sit here today that that's how you're feeling right now. You see, I I don't know you. And I don't know what issues you're facing. It seems to me there's been a, a hectic week trying to sort the cabin out. But I don't know what issues you're facing on a personal level. There might be a struggling relationship. There might be an economic crisis. There might be a family illness. I don't know. But I know every time one of those struggles comes into your life, the temptation will be to be distracted, to lose sight of the end goal, and to start focusing on that. And here the writer says, no, no, don't you you be distracted. Don't you slip away. Don't you shrink back. Don't falter. He says, you stay the course. See, see, there'll be lots of temptations in the world today, aren't there? Lots of distractions. The devil is hoping to get you away from heaven into hell. Now, we don't, we don't give up. We press on. So we draw near to God. We hold unswervingly. And here's the last one which I'm going to finish. 
He says to us, we'll spur one another on. Look at verse 24. Let us consider how we may spur one another on towards love and good deeds. The summons here is to focus our energies on each other. Consider ways to stir up each other. The the word is a very interesting word. It's the word urge. It's the word provoke, incite. If if you've got little children, you'll know that one of them will needle the other. Do you understand that expression? They niggle. They needle. They incite them. That's actually what he's saying here. He's saying you should be inciting each other. You should be urging each other. Uh, If you're interested, if, if you've picked up those three, draw near in faith, persevere in hope, spur one another on in love. See, what's the mark of the Christian who's gone through the way? Faith, hope, and love. See, it's here again. See, but he says to us, no, 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 stimulate each other, motivate each other, spur one another on to tangible expressions of care and conduct within the Christian community. And he understands that that cannot happen. You can't be spurring each other on if you're not meeting together. That's why he says, without neglecting to meet, each, uh, to meet together. John Wesley wrote, The Bible knows nothing of solitary religion. Let me say that again. The Bible knows nothing of solitary religion. See, even back then, John Wesley knew the importance of gathering together. And that's exactly what the writer of the Hebrews is calling for. He's saying, how can you spur one another on if you never see each other? I have an older brother. We never see each other. He's he's about 2,000 kilometers away from us in another part of South Africa. It's very hard to encourage each other. We try. We try and do it over the telephone. We try and do it over the internet when we get a chance. It's very difficult, isn't it? But when you're together, that's when you do it. That's when you spur each other on. That's when you incite one another to love and good deeds. You see, we can't be doing that unless when we're meeting together, we're encouraging one another. See, that's what we should be doing. We should be seeing the day is coming, that day when we're in heaven, and we say because it's coming, we should encourage one another, spur one another on to love each other. See, our purpose as we come together, be it here, be it in South Africa, Takai, our purpose of gathering is to exhort one another to persevere, to pray, to go on the way. That's why we do this. See, those who draw near pray. Those who hold unswervingly to their hope persevere. But those who want to spur one another on to love and good deeds must participate. They must be together. One author writes, Christian assemblies are intended to have a positive and helpful outcome. The basic idea is that Christians should meet together to strengthen and stimulate one another. Close and regular fellowship with other believers is not just a nice idea, but an absolute necessity for the encouragement of Christian values and conduct. I, I hope you will see your coming together as a local church as a necessity. I hope and pray you don't come to church, and forgive me for saying this, David, but I hope and pray you don't come to church out of some sense of loyalty to David. And I hope and pray you don't come to this church out of some duty or obligation. I hope and pray you'll gather as God's people in this place out of necessity. Because you know unless you're meeting together, you won't be encouraged and you won't be spurred on and you won't be exhorted to follow our Lord Jesus Christ day by day. Maybe it's just me, but let me tell you, I find the Christian life jolly hard. It's not easy. And you might think I'm saying this because I'm a pastor. That's not the case. 
But let me tell you, I need my local church. And next we'll tell you, when we travel, the thing we miss the most is our local church, is the relationships, the family, the fellowship that we have there that spurs us on in our Christian walk. Dear friends, don't give up meeting together. Don't give up meeting together. You need one another because it's your brothers and sisters in Christ who will keep pointing you to Jesus, to the sacrifice he made on the cross, to the price he paid, that you might draw near in faith, in hope, in love. But let me finish on a sad note. Because the sad reality, according to Hebrews 10, is some are. Let me read it to you. Let us not give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing. See, the sad reality is that there will be those who don't meet together, who don't persevere, who don't pray, who don't access the way that's been opened up to them. They would rather continue in their sin and their rebellion. They refuse to accept Jesus' sacrifice on the cross. And it might even be that there'll be some from this visible church today, this meeting today, that five years or ten years or twenty years down the line won't be here anymore. And the writer to the Hebrews says, make sure that's not you. Make sure that's not you. See, he's writing this not to scare you and me, not to make us insecure, not to say that Christians can lose their salvation. That's not what he's addressing here in chapter 10 at all. But he's saying, make sure you stick with Jesus. It's the encouragement, the warning to stay the course. You see, if Jesus is the only way, there can be no alternative. And we must remember that. And so he pleads with them, as I plead with you today, don't throw away your confidence. Don't shrink back from your faith. Don't show yourself as one who will face the judgment of God. Now you show yourself to be living the new and living way that Jesus has opened. You bear the fruit of somebody who's on that way. You pray, you persevere, you participate. And as this chapter finishes, you show by your fruit, by your prayers, your perseverance and your participation, you show that you are amongst those who believe and are saved. Dear friends, Jesus has opened the way. And the question you must ask this morning is, may you go in there? And the answer of Hebrews chapter 10 is, you are very welcome. You are very welcome. Let's pray. Father, take your word, we pray, and write it in our hearts and minds. Help us to see, Lord, that through your Son, Jesus, a new and living way has been opened up where we have access to you. Help us, we pray, Lord, to draw near to you by faith. Help us to hold unswervingly to the hope we profess. And help us, Lord, to spur one another on to love and good deeds. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.